So hello and welcome to episode three of the Nurse Joe podcast. Um, and yeah, thank you for your patience if you've been uh, waiting for this episode. Um, but as you know, this 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 podcast is really very much about um, me being in relationship. Um, and with that in mind, I'm only really going to talk about or with people who I am uh, actively in relationship with. Um, and my guest today uh, is very much one of those people. So uh, Kieran Ahmed, or Dr. Kieran Ahmed, is uh, a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, and yeah, possibly my best friend in a psychedelic space. <laughs> so I hope she doesn't find that too creepy. <laughs> but um, I'm gonna, uh, without further ado, I'm gonna let her introduce herself. So over to Dr. Kieran, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Joe, and for that little intro. Uh, very lovely of you. So, yeah, I guess when people ask me to introduce myself, I do think about how to, to do that in terms of what I and how I identify. But the thing that just came to me then was uh, that I identify as a David Bowie fan. <laughs> and then, well, that's, I guess that's because David Bowie, first of all, I'm yeah, a big fan. And I quite like the fact that he had and still has, I guess, um, these different alter egos, so stepping into whether it's Ziggy Stardust or the Thin White Duke, and that's how I like to see what I do, so as Kieran Ahmed stepping into the role of Dr. Kieran, so the Dr. Kieran role is uh, an anaesthetist specialising in chronic pain, and through that role I've also worked with uh, Doctors Without Borders or Medicines Sans Frontières, where I did a mission and a few months stint in South Sudan. And more recently, I have been at the Centre for Psychedelic Research with Imperial and working on a study, the first of its kind in this sort of current era of uh, psychedelic research where we're actually looking at psilocybin in the context of chronic pain and specifically fibromyalgia patients. Um, so yeah, David Bowie fan, alter egos, multiple roles. There are a few more within that, but I'll sort of uh, pause there for a moment. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, gosh, there's so much we can get into there. And yeah, I love that reference to, to David Bowie. That's something that we've spoken about before. And uh, yeah, these, this idea of uh, uh, using an alter ego. So I talk about Nurse Joe as a, a kind of al an alter ego as well. Some Something that I can uh, step into, something that uh, in many ways uh, can be... Uh, bigger and better <laughs> than, than, than Joe Mallet. And uh, yeah, I, I love that. And yeah, so, um, and we'll, we'll get, get into the stuff around Imperial as well in a bit, but maybe it might be interesting for people to know uh, a little bit about uh, 
how we met and 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 why we are here and uh are you, are you okay to say a bit about that if i can yeah to... yeah of course so yeah we met i think it was in 2019 but a few years ago and it was in the netherlands at a legal psychedelic retreat um yeah this retreat was run by henry whitfield i ended up there quite randomly i won't go into the the full backstory of it but essentially it was um mainly clinicians so i was a doctor there but it was i think the majority you obviously as a mental health nurse and then there were a few therapists and it was uh, based in a act so acceptance and commitment therapy sort of um rooted rootedness um yeah, and I guess we met, actually, I think the main thing that I remember from our meeting was you sitting opposite me in our actual psychedelic experience and journey, and I could see that you were having a deep process, um, and yeah, I guess I was too, but... Um, yeah, we can, again, we talk about that separately, but I think in, 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 that was like my early years of, uh, psychedelic, uh, medicines and I would describe myself still being on the sort of so-called, I like the term spiritual bender <laughs> where I was sort of taking medicines um, in legal settings. I went to the jungle in Peru and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I wasn't really taking a lot of time to integrate the experiences. And I think that retreat for me, I was still in that a little bit. And I remember I sort of was dressed up a little bit and I had some makeup on and I was sat up through the experience. And because I think I had an idea of that's what you should be doing. Whereas actually, as I've sort of gone further down my journey, that, that, that was all a bit of a, a learning experience for me. Um, but yeah, and I also remember having uh, debriefs in the mornings about our experiences. And I guess since then, our lives have intertwined, the, running in parallel as mates and they're sort of crossing over and We've worked together at Imperial on the psilocybin study and, you know, we're sort of in constant communication about what we're doing sort of on our own and how we may collaborate and, uh, yeah, so a few things there. Yeah, so uh, many people will know that's the retreat that I kind of describe as my kind of uh, breakthrough retreat. It's, it's the one that really was a, a massive uh, catalyst for change for me and, yeah, I went into that retreat uh, a little bit, uh, a bit naive, um, a little bit cocksure of myself because uh, I had such an extensive psychedelic uh, uh, drug history, but in in kind of more kind of recreational settings. And what I'd never done is uh, approach the medicines kind of with intention, in ceremony, uh, with ritual, and uh, with this idea of going in so um yeah and it was a a, a really big uh, retreat for me as you said you know quite a lot of process there I think I pretty much cried for 
six hours continuously. Uh, I often say I cried like the exorcist. Um, and, you know, for somebody who didn't really cry, that was quite a big thing for me. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and uh, you, know, I, you know, not this happens to everybody, but I had the, the, the kind of experience of, you know, everything changing after that. And, yeah, I remember you there. I remember you dressed up. I remember actually thinking how beautiful you were in your, your lovely shiny, shiny green uh, eyeshadow and I think I had you Genevieve Karen in front of me these really strong women who who did have experience and that was a you know a massive uh, source of uh, comfort to me while I was uh, yeah pranging out walking about crying my eyes out and um, yeah and uh, at that at that time we, we were both kind of working uh, I think you, you would have been in the NHS I'd have been doing my kind of mental health work uh, with people with autism and, and stuff like that. And uh, we had no idea of, of kind of um, what would happen over the, the, the next few years and how we would both um, end up kind of working in in, in psychedelics, in, 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 in the psychedelic field in, 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 different, in, in different ways. Um, but uh, at times those kind of paths crossing, um, like when we, we both spoke at Baking Convention this year and, and people can look up at our talks and, and yeah, and at, at Imperial College where um, uh, I've been a, a guide on a, a couple of the studies, I've guided on the eating disorder um, study and I've guided for uh, three of the participants on the chronic pain trial and um, two of them have been you which is with you which has uh, been absolutely amazing um, and yeah so maybe we can tell people a little bit about that trial so um, yeah what you know what what it's for um, what it what's it about and um, how how did it come about because it's my understanding that that this is uh, uh, pretty much the first uh, trial of its its kind um, uh, during you know this this uh, part of the psychedelic renaissance, so maybe you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks, Joe. Um, the so I guess first to say is um, I within anaesthesia, I'm specialising in chronic pain and working with those patients for a few years, recognising that there was a quite a significant crossover between other mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression and chronic pain. And I was aware of the work that was going on at Imperial with psilocybin and depression. And so I decided to reach out to Professor David Nutt to see if there were there was any indication for using these medicines in chronic pain. And he immediately got back in touch. And within a few weeks, I was in a meeting with him in his office. And we were having this discussion. So that was in December 2018. And I remember him speaking about a patient of his or someone that he knew who had significant chronic pain that was quite debilitating and I think it was a young person who was a skateboarder and actually after a large recreational dose of psychedelics then this person's pain was almost transformed so yeah a few discussions around different topics um, and then 
that's when the idea for the chronic pain, psilocybin and chronic pain study, also known as silopain, so silopain in <clears throat> fibromyalgia participants, psilocybin in fibromyalgia participants, that's what, is when it was birthed. So um, in 2018, and then since then, you know, it's taken a long while to get ethics approval and as psilocybin is still in schedule one there's a lot of um steps to go through in order to, before you get a, a study off the ground but now we're we've just got two participants left to dose and then we've completed the initial part of our study then it needs to be analyzed and yeah then hopefully the the results will come out um, sort of mid next year. Mm. Yeah, and I guess most people wouldn't even realise just how much is involved in, uh, you know, get, getting a, a, a study to the point where you can actually start seeing participants. There's so many hurdles to get through, uh, including financial hurdles. And, um, you know, I think it's okay, probably okay for me to say that uh, this trial has uh primarily relied on kind of uh volunteer guides um uh, and that you've done really well in spite of that and i think actually maybe in many ways that's actually been part of the beauty of it because what you what you've actually done is you've kind of attracted quite a a diverse population um of guides onto that study and, and we can talk about that a bit more but yeah so you're just coming towards the end end of the study I think you're on your, your last two uh participants out of 20 and of course we can't give away too much about what their kind of initial uh findings are because people got to crunch the data and all that kind of stuff but maybe we can speak a, a little bit around some of the the themes that are coming through and some of the things that we you know we might be uh learning about this this particular uh population and the things that we might want to uh, think about kind of uh going forwards and yeah so you know you, you're, you're a few years in what, 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 what's coming up for you at the, at the moment yeah i guess thinking about um the patient population to start with so fibromyalgia patients or participants it's often a diagnosis of exclusion which basically means that they've gone to a number of different specialists and there hasn't been a um, diagnosis of anything else, but they're still presenting with widespread muscular pain and um, they eventually get a diagnosis with um, of chronic pain or fibromyalgia. But there's a, you know, as a group of patients, there's a really interesting crossover with uh, mental health related issues and how that can present in the body so it's not to say that I think a lot of these patients get told that it's there's a psychological component to their chronic pain but I think sometimes this is not framed in the most effective way because what patients can interpret from that is oh are you saying it's all in my head and they often have quite a difficult relationship with the Western healthcare system because they're passed from one specialty, whether it's your orthopedic surgeons examining lower back pain, or then you know, they go to a 
<clears throat> rheumatologist or an anaesthetist. So they get they have to go through a lot to finally get a diagnosis. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a there's quite a bit to think about there. And yeah, when you mentioned that we have had um, uh, a group of guides who have helped us, you know, with the study, you, yourself included, and um, the, the whole team of guides, very, very grateful to. Um, but I think what the beauty of our particular team is that we have such a wide variety of experiences from, you know, there's myself as a anaesthetist, you as a mental health nurse and a neurodiversity specialist and uh, there are researchers, a GP, therapists, um, people working with diversity, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole range of different voices and lenses and I think that's really important in this work when we're, when we're working in a sort of relatively new field in terms of psychedelics in mental health, you know, noting that psychedelics have been used for forever. Um, but I think in this context, it's very important to have multiple lenses come through. Um, so we're, we're not just focusing on one way of uh, working with these medicines mm, yeah yeah and actually what just came up for me there just kind of hearing about the um yeah the kind of typical journey of a lot of these chronic pain patients and the kind of relationships that they have um with their caregivers you know often they're they're, they're, they're not um believed or um taken seriously and you know I think one one of the things that has, has certainly seems to be coming through in, in, in some of the people that I've worked with and we've worked through together you know there's something about the, 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 this uh, experience that, you know, even on a trial that we, you know we spend we spend a lot of time with these people aren't we we're spending you know often uh, the whole day with them um, you know several times and um, you know, certainly one of the the interesting uh, things I think uh, that has kind of come up is that there's there's often been this um, seems to be this capacity to to almost kind of repair some of that 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 relationship because um, um, we just yeah we just kind of have so so much time and yeah just thinking about this particular uh, client group where there's uh, of course physical and emotional stuff coming together we've really had to try and be very uh, what I, I would and you you would uh, identify with as kind of being very uh, participant centered um, and really trying to um, uh, adapt to uh, the needs of the participant um, uh, and not the other way, way around as best as we can within the confines of a clinical trial where we of course have lots of restrictions in terms of the the set set in um, and, and stuff like that and um yeah anything you would like to, to say about that about the kind of the, the ways we've 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 tried to adapt on the trial yeah and i guess in um certain healthcare settings there have been there are these pain management programs where um there are multidisciplinary team sort of set up where you do have 
chronic pain specialist, physiotherapist, uh, maybe a clinical psychologist, everyone working together um, with the participant in mind to help um, formulate a much sort of bigger management plan instead of just thinking it's treating the, the symptoms. But I think quite often these, you know, the, because it's the NHS and there's lots of issues around uh, funding and um, financial constraints that these programs can only be offered for a certain period of time and I think there's limited effectiveness and people say it's, it's it's very helpful some people find it not so helpful um, but it's it's interesting and I think it's good to see that um, there's a, a coming together of, uh, of, of different teams to sort of manage um, participants and patients in general um, yeah and I guess um, in a psychedelic caregiving setting when we're working with these medicines it's really important that yeah we're working with what's in front in front of us and to not necessarily um, you know, to I think with clinicians, and it's not just clinicians, but specialties or where, where you've apprenticed for a long while with uh, other people and you've, you've learned a, uh, you know, trade or a way of working where ethics are central, where reflective practice is central, where safety of what's in front of you is central, how to manage your own things that are coming up. I think it's really, really useful to have that in, in the background. Um, so you've got that sort of underpinning, but then also recognizing that you're working with medicines that you probably never worked with before. And how do you learn to work with those, adapt in that setting, and yeah, I guess then sort of conversations that are happening at the moment, um, yeah. Yeah, and then I, I guess so, um, now often if people uh, watch the films or see 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 the pictures um, from lots of kind of psychedelic research uh, settings, you'll often see somebody in a bed with headphones, eye mask on, maybe a couple of... Um, uh, guides either side of them um, and I think it's probably fair to say that uh, in in the uh, chronic pain trial it's not always like that so you know we, we've had lots of uh, we've had to make um, amendments some of these these participants have had to be allowed to to move they're in pain they've been allowed to move or they've had issues where they you know, haven't been comfortable with the with the um headset or the eye mask and we've, we've tried to be as adaptable as we can um uh with that in mind and I, i'm thinking i had a participant who was just like uh yeah i, I can't be on that bed I, I can't be in that chair I, that's gonna have to go and you're gonna have to get on the floor and um so you know we've been able to uh uh, uh try to be uh, as adaptive as you can within within the within the confines because um yeah, unfortunately, you don't have the the, the flexibility that, that we might have in a more uh, naturalistic setting um, to, to, to respond to these things. But um, and yeah, and so you mentioned uh, neurodiversity, and yeah, I, I, I think as we know, it's a quite a small small um, 
a small sample. Um, but yeah, we I think it's, it's, it's okay to say that um, we've been a bit surprised that it seems that neurodiversity has been a, an issue for for uh, several of the, the participants. Would you like to say a bit about that? Yeah, so again, I think we have to just be cautious that we can't um, draw too much from such a small sample size and before results have been analysed. Um, but, you know, we can maybe speak to some patterns that we're seeing or some things that are coming up or where certain things might be slightly overrepresented. And um, if it's not necessarily picked up in the data, is it something that we just need to be thinking about as a conversation? And yeah, I guess what we've seen is um, an overrepresentation of neurodiverse participants coming through, and wonder because often these patients, participants who have neurodiversity, because they process things in slightly different way, they can have heightened experiences um, to sensory stimuli so wondering whether you know that's part of their um, perception to pain um, again this is just sort of just a you know very loose observation but again the beauty of the beauty and importance of having different voices and experiences in the team to sort of make these and make these dots and to connect these dots because um, in a traditional healthcare system, you know, when you when you've got a participant, a patient with chronic pain, and they may have other mental health things going on, it's not always an easy communication between the mental health care team and the, the 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 pain team, for example, because the hospitals just aren't really set up like that. And you often have to go back to your GP and then get a referral onto the next place. And the main person who's looking after all the paperwork is your own GP. And so, again, I think this the, be the beauty of what we've done in the last few years on this study is just had the ability to look at these patients and participants in a much more holistic way and sort of see what role potential trauma may have and what what role trauma may not have because it's not all about you know it's not just about trauma and psychedelics there are um plenty of other things going on um yeah yeah and um yeah and it, well it, I, you know I'm, I'm always banging on about neurodiversity but <laughs> um you know and and the importance of being able to see these people through um various lenses so I have my own theory that when, when we you know, if we if we come across somebody who might be labeled as uh hard to reach or treatment resistant um uh you know whatever the primary diagnosis they've been given um I think it's always useful to to have a think about um whether this is uh it, whether there's some level of neurodiversity that's been missed here um because uh, uh yeah sometimes so, so, so one of my things I've, I've worked a lot with women high functioning women with neurodiversity um uh present with all kinds of issues and then then often if we can get to the bottom of this and we can get them a diagnosis and they can get understanding of that neurodiversity then uh, often that the mental health stuff will go of its own uh accord that's just my personal experience but um and i guess my other concern is that um sometimes when you have uh neurodiverse people because of the way they have a, a different uh 
social communication style um, that sometimes they can, you know, the, the, the way they are, the way they, they interact can be uh, interpreted as some kind of uh, pathology. Um, and yeah, I just think we need to be really very careful about that and, and doubly careful about that in, 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 the, in the psychedelic uh, space and in, in, in research and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, and that's something that you've has been, uh, yeah, very alive for us and something that you've taken uh, really uh, seriously to the point that you've put on a kind of whole series of training around uh, different kinds of diversity. So um, I, I I did did one of those sessions with uh, the wonderful Aaron Orsini. So he's a um, uh, uh, an amazing uh, neurodiverse um, person who um, speaks very. Uh, widely in the space about the, the issues of, of psychedelics and, and neurodiversity. Um, he's got lots of different books. He, he, he's, he's probably one of his really famous ones is uh, Autism on Acid that you, you can look up, thoroughly recommend it. Um, but yeah, so you've got people like Aaron in to, to, to come and talk to the team and, and to tell you about what, 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 what some of the potential issues are and uh what we might want to do about that and yeah that, that i think that's that's wonderful and, and maybe you could tell us a bit more about that series because that was just one talk and, and there's there's several yes it's part of the psychedelic caregiving series which was set up by myself and um, sarah reed who works at the center so she's the lead therapist on the psilocybin for ocd study and Lisa Luan, who's a PhD candidate and um, lead researcher on the continuous DMT infusion study. And three of us, through our own experiences working on studies, felt there was a, a need um, and it would be useful to put on this series to look at different areas of um diversity so whether it be neurodiversity gender diversity um and more recently in fact yesterday um we did a talk on race and ethnicity um to start talking points around that um yeah so i think but sarah lisa myself we're all um women of colour in this space with our different experiences and uh, roles within the centre. And yeah, at the talk yesterday, we felt it's important in the psychedelic space because actually what we've noted in recruitment of participants into studies is actually there's a underrepresentation of people of colour and from other forms from different backgrounds. So one aspect is why do we have an underrepresentation and is that due to some of our recruitment strategies? And then the other is to talk about um, the idea of cultural competency and cultural safety for participants when they actually get onto trials. Um, so I know there are some guidelines being created at the moment by some of our team. I think it will be published sometime next year where the 
reporting of the concept of setting is being spoken about and how do you report on setting in the context of clinical studies and one of the things that came out of this study which was um, a Delphi study asking experts as to what they thought was important in terms of reporting on these studies one of those things was cultural competency and cultural safety so how do we provide training for staff members how do we create safe spaces for participants when they come in and to avoid harm um, and so the talk that we delivered yesterday was part of this discussion and um, yeah it's I guess we're lucky at the centre um, because with David Nutt, who's the, the head, and David Arizzo, you know, we've got two very supportive bosses, as it were, and they're very open um, to these sorts of conversations happening and hopefully changes being made within, within the institution. Mm. And yeah, do, do, uh, uh, I love that kind of emphasis on um, uh, reducing harm. Um, and yeah, we know that a lot of harms have been done to people, particularly people from minority groups in, in, the, in the history of, of, of research. Um, and yeah, and, and so what, what are your, have you got any kind of key themes, things people should con- consider when kind of recruiting Um people from diverse backgrounds yeah so we can draw some learnings from other aspects of mental health care and healthcare in general where we see certain inequalities and actually to be able to interrogate and to look within ourselves um, to see where our unconscious biases may lie and how that can affect uh, an interaction with a participant. So as a way of an example, a participant of colour may, in a, a dynamic with a white provider, may not feel... 100% safe as they may do with someone from their own background and they may present a little bit fidgety or you know whatever's showing up in their physical bodies or with what they're saying the provider may mislabel them as having anxiety or a certain disorder and so Um, care has to be taken when there are these interactions and understanding where your own biases may be playing into something. Um, And in terms of recruiting, there are a number of things that can be done, but I think one of the important factors is to have a diverse team uh, like within your staff because actually what that does is help to bring the conversation to the table in a sort of authentic way and encouraging of all voices to be able to speak up and actually be heard. Um, yeah, and I guess what happens a lot out there is like a sort of a tick box exercise 
website so you hire somebody and they look a certain way and then you can put them on a website and say oh yeah we've ticked the the edi box and you know edi this edi that but actually it's very very superficial changes and it doesn't lead to a lot of um, long-term meaningful changes within the institution so yeah it's a big topic and a lot to say around it um yeah but perhaps i'll pause there for now yeah yeah and um yeah i think you know uh, another thing from the chronic pain trial you know there's been uh, a lot of consideration um particularly if we have somebody who comes through um who uh, has any kind of diversity about you know who are the right guides? What are the what does the what does the right pairing of the guides look like? You know, some traditional approaches might be oh you 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 need it should be a, a male and a female. You know, that's the best in terms of kind of psychodynamic understanding. But I think for through the chronic pain trial, it's been a bit more. I mean, actually, you know, are these the are these the 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 the, the, the right people based on their experience? And you know, I think there's been a lot of consideration around that, or even if it's been like. Um, of course, you know, within a trial, we've got we've got time constraints and certain slots, and um, you know, really trying to, uh, uh, yeah, be thoughtful about um, you know not not pushing through certain people and, and having the time and space to, to plan properly for them and bring them in when when it's best for them and 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 stuff like that. And I think you know uh, a lot of that is because of you. <laughs> um, yeah and just and and just on that note i think it's um you know it's important to say that this this idea of matching so who do you match your participants to so you've spoken about gender and it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the case that if you have a participant of color that they should necessarily be matched with a therapist of color because it ultimately depends on where that participant is with their, the relationship with their own identity and you know you shouldn't necessarily be projecting your own ideas onto what it is that they need but can we get ourselves into a position where we can empower the participants and individuals to have that choice where we have teams where there are um, there's a choice that this participant could have a therapist of color or a guide of color uh and maybe a, a white guide as well but just just to be in a position where we can at least offer that um yeah and it, it, it's, it's just something to be thinking about and i think the other thing that i've sort of seen and would just sort of caution against is if people have worked with certain type, certain groups of people in other contexts. So whether if you've worked with participants of colour in, say, the NHS or in your um, in a therapy setting, then it doesn't necessarily mean that you know it all and that you've got the answers. And actually, we're working in a psychedelic caregiving setting, and there are different considerations to think about um, what might come up for the participant how you might hold that how you assist with integration of those experiences do you have the language in order to do that could you actually be causing more harm um, so yeah I think what I've witnessed in this space is if you bring some of this conversation to the table 
there can be a sort of oh but I've already I already know this because I've worked with x y and z as opposed to oh I have worked with x y and z and I can also recognize that I have gaps in my knowledge here and this is where something that I I need to look at so yeah just to caution around people who think that they may know the right answers um Mm. Yeah, 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 very interesting. Um, and yeah, so you're kind of coming uh, toward the end of the trial, and 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 yeah, that that will be kind of written up and and published, and and perhaps we bring you back uh, around that time, and we can get into a bit more about kind of what 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 the results show. But but what what what's next for you? What what are your plans after the trial? What are you going to be doing? So I'm going back to the NHS. So in February 2024, I go back to finish my final year of chronic pain specialisms. Then at the end of that, I'll qualify as a consultant, anaesthetist and chronic pain specialist. And at the same time, I'm going to be doing my um, movement medicine professional training. So that's just um, it's a form of conscious dance. I've always loved dancing. I think everybody loves dancing in some in some form. But I discovered conscious dance, you know, sort of a few a few years ago. People may have heard of Five Rhythms, which was started by Gabriella Roth. And essentially it's just a way of moving your body. <laughs> and I just happened to enjoy this particular area of movement medicine and I found two teachers David and Yasha that I really connect with so I'm going down uh, this route of learning of of learning this uh, this training and who knows in the future there may be a way of merging it all together you know we ask say to chronic pain participants that uh, movement might be helpful exercise is helpful Maybe there's a way of integrating sort of movement into uh, NHS settings where you can have maybe physiotherapists, nurses, occupational therapists around so it's all done in a safe way. And then me, as the anaesthetist, can also be on the decks, like <laughs> some banging tunes, but also doing it in the safe way. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Dr. Kids or DJ Kids or Dr. K, whatever you want to call me, I can come up with that sort of uh, my, my other, my next alter ego. Um, yeah, so that's sort of that. Um and then who knows in the future, I'm sort of just, uh, I'm quite open-minded. Um, I've done, you know, I've done this work on the psychedelic chronic pain stuff. Maybe that will, maybe there'll be some, some something further to develop depending on what the results show. Um, so yeah, I just have a very open, open mind. We shall see. Mm. Watch this space. Mm, I, I I love that, and I I think um, the the uh, NHS is very lucky to be getting you back after uh, you know you having uh, all this uh, psychedelic exposure. You're 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 having finished your psychedelic bender <laughs> a few years ago, um, and uh, yeah, I had one of those myself, and. Um, but yeah, you know, I often think what it'd be like if I went back, I haven't been in the NHS for about 10 years, what it would be like if I could go back and or maybe manage an acute psychiatric ward or 
um, you know, how 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 uh, it might be coming back to it with a kind of a, 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 a different another le- another lens. Um, and yeah, I love that uh, idea about doing something which is kind of very um, embodied um, and. Um, yeah, and we talk, we've talked about that a lot. We talk, we've talked about that a lot in terms of uh, what can be useful for people's integration. And you know, sometimes people take quite a heady approach, you know, lots of journaling, um, therapy sessions, that kind of stuff. But I think we both share a, a, a passion for um, integration activities that are, are quite embodied. So dancing, walking, uh, getting out in nature, uh care of the body getting good sleep that that kind of stuff um and um yeah and I love that yeah Dr K on the decks (laughs) (laughs) and then yeah just to say you know dance it's nothing it's nothing new we've been doing it since the beginning of times you know you put on a the drum any sort of drum beat you've got your people got their toes tapping or their heads bopping or whatever you want to call it you know we Every culture, every um, ethnicity has a form of dance, and um, it's just, this is just sort of one way of uh, learning and using it. But I, it just made me think as you were speaking, um, I and, and the integration aspect. So I, I was in Gabon in this basically this time last year. I was getting. Um, initiated into Bwiti uh, tradition over there, one of the oldest traditions around. And actually, as part of that, they have an all-day and all-night like uh, dancing ceremony to help integrate the experience of uh, Iboga, essentially. Um, And, yeah, there's a lot to be said from... From learning from the indigenous people because they, they you know, we're, we're saying things like embodiment. They've been doing these things instinctively for many, many, many years. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a different. That's that that whole topic and sort of my connection to Gabon and blessings of the forest and reciprocity work around Ibogaine and Iboga. Um, I think we should probably save for another day, but it's mm. uh, it's that's a whole other topic in itself I would say yeah I think that's definitely for uh podcast uh four (laughs) um just to think where I am only at the beginning um but yeah absolutely and it's been very hard for me to uh well not very hard but slightly difficult slightly challenging uh to, to guide on the trials and not be able to take over certainly the end of the playlist get something on a, a bit more banging that people might want to move to if, if, if they're kind of in the mood and yeah not to have access to to things like uh the fire getting outside looking at the stars walking in 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 nature all those kind of things that are uh uh innately therapeutic and and, and kind of enhance the, the kind of medicine experience but in a way uh djing another form of space holding and that, that kind of reminded me how uh anesthetists are uh really the ultimate space holder in 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 in, uh, in medicine and, and but maybe people don't really haven't even thought about that before wouldn't know that so maybe you could say a little bit about that how, how, how anesthetists are, are space holders 
Yeah, I think a lot of people's preconceptions or even experiences of an anaesthetist, anaesthesia is the, the, the person, often is, are they even a doctor, but the person who uh, knocks me out for surgery. Um, but actually, there's a, lot, a little bit more to it than that. And um, yeah, I guess we're using, in the olden days, I would have called, it, called them drugs, anaesthetic drugs. But now I'll sort of, you know, I like to use the word medicines. And there's a lot of, a lot of, first of all, you need a lot of understanding of the medicines that you're working with, you know, some medicine competence. There are some medicines that you use that need to be very, very dose specific because there's a very, very narrow therapeutic index. So if you in, underdose or overdose, you, it, it's, it's a very fine line. And then there are other medicines where you have um, a little bit more room to give a little bit and then watch and wait and then give a little bit and watch and wait. But actually with some other medicines, you can't do that because you give a little bit and then it's going to last for forever. Um, so really understanding the medicines that you're working with. And then when you actually give an anesthetic, you're taking someone from the alive, wake state and you're holding them in this position between essentially life and death. Hopefully they don't go to death because they're not problematic. But, um, you know, it, 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 it's somewhere you, you're holding in that space, basically. And in, in the operating theatre, that gives the surgeon the opportunity to do whatever they need to do and work on the specific area that they're working on but you as a sort of um, anaesthetist and space holder you're really responding to what's happening in the surgical field like preempting things like keeping an eye on what's going on in front of you with the participant or the patient and just really um, trying to be not reactive so that something happens and then like deal with it but like being attuned to what's going on in the moment um and yeah and obviously there are all different types of anaesthetists or any sort of you know some might just well i won't talk about what some might do that <laughs> <So laughs> <laughs> could go on forever i was thinking of sudoku you know some people have this idea that i need to sit there and do sudoku in in, in the theaters but um that's absolutely not how i work it's 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 it's, it's being you and I have spoken about the, the 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 nervous system, like the polyvagal theory, and how you can tell if someone is activated from a nervous system point of view. So, in in, in their sympathetic nervous system, or if they're in, uh, you know, if they're attuned or in or in freeze. And I, yeah, like to use that without even sort of knowing that I was using that as a sort of model. But when I'm with patients to try and attune to their nervous system and recognize that you've got a short but very vital period to get patients comfortable before they go into an anesthetic and some people can do that well and some people don't really think about it and I think it's really important to recognize that you've got a human being in front of you who's about to go into an experience which they're quite often terrified about but masking quite well so it's how do I make this patient feel comfortable? Like, do I crack one of my amazing jokes or do I, <laughs> do 
Do I give them a blanket or, you know, what, whatever it may be? Do I put a banger on in the background as a song or, you know? Uh, but you have to just you have to just work with what's in front of you, um, mm. and I think a lot of that can be um, like it's transferable to to psychedelic work. But at the same time, to recognise that there are often, if you've been trained in a modality, whatever modality it is, when you're working in the psychedelic space, there is a lot of unlearning to do from your own thing. From, from your own sort of specialism so to be aware of what you know what you don't know and sort of just be mindful of what you're projecting into the space and onto the participant and what you think is the right the the the, the right idea that's why it's really key to have people from lots of different um spaces and learnings when you sort of uh yeah, working with people. Yeah, and I guess just the other thing to add here is, you know, working, we've spoken about this before, is like working um, in in your own comfort zone and, you know, within your level of competence and skill. So, you know, we talk about the importance of bringing in Indigenous wisdom um, but also recognizing that we're like Western, sort of you and I, we're Western trained clinicians. So I guess how do we meet in somewhere in the middle, like where we're, like where where, where you're being underpinned by and rooted in the the discipline and that you're working in, but also being able to invite in these other elements in a in a way that is meaningful and not just appropriating or bringing in something random to just for the sake of it without any sort of thinking and understanding why. Um, so, yeah, again, there's a, there's a lot we can dive into about that, but perhaps another time. Yeah, and I love that uh, reference to, to the polyvagal theory and the, the nervous system and... Um, yeah, that that way uh, that a, a good uh, anaesthetist or kind of any 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 clinician really has that capacity to kind of co-regulate with a patient um, to to make the people around them feel more uh, regulated, the people they're kind of working with, and and, and Stephen Porges who. Uh, whose theory that is the polyvagal theory he says yeah, basically if, if you want if you want the world to, if you want to make the world a, a better place, uh, make people feel safe. Um, and for me, that is really very much the kind of uh, the most important part of um, uh, psychedelic caregiving and, and holding space for people in a psychedelic it's, it's, um, uh, arena. So this idea of making people feel safe, um, allowing them to trust, um, dare I say, feel loved. Um, and I think that that is... Uh, more important uh, than a lot of the things that people think are important <laughs> um and um yeah and I I, I know and I am I right in saying that you haven't actually even had a, a, a general anesthetic yet did I, did I did I make that up do I, do I remember that did, no, did I make... 
Yeah. So, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've given hundreds and hundreds, yeah. if not into thousands, of uh, like of, of anesthetics, but no, I haven't had one. Yeah, and everyone's always like, "Oh, that you know, it's amazing." And, yeah. yeah, so I, I, have absolute, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, so I was gonna say, so if you if if, if I've been waiting to have a, a procedure or something, get the the moment I see the the anesthetist. I relax because they're usually they're, they're, they're brilliant. They're really good at kind of making you feel um, comfortable. But also I know that shortly after that, I'm going to be given some of the good stuff <laughs> and I'm going to be on my way to La La Land. So, um, um, yeah, and um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, that adding add to that, that stuff around um, nervous system regulation, I remember having a chat with you saying that, you know, when you, next time you're, 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 you're back in, in in that that the arena in 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 a uh, in a in a theatre something like that that you are going to be even more conscious of kind of what not just what you do but kind of what is going on in the space around you and the people that you're working with just to kind of add to that experience for the for the the patient of 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 you know things being okay and calm and um and yeah so you know I'd I'd love you to give me a a, a, a general <laughs> anaesthetic <laughs> what, what are you doing this evening. <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah. uh, oh, I, I actually yeah go on well, I was gonna say why don't I break your leg and then you can come well yeah <laughs> it's actually but it might be where it might be of interest to people so that you know I was a um a uh, a participant on the uh, continuous infusion uh, DMT trial at Imperial and uh hopefully we're going to get Lisa Lewin on uh soon to, t- to tell us a bit more about that um but uh, I was so lucky to have uh, Kieran as the the person. Uh, what, what did you do? Press the button, set it up, and and you know, I so I had it kind of for kind of two, uh, two IV lines. One of them had the medicine, um, and yeah, yeah so, and gone. Yes, I I gave. I think you know everything's out now, so we can say what we want. But yeah, yeah, I gave you the the. The, the bolus so it was like a an injection of it and then started the the pump so you know I was your either the you know you can call me whatever you want I was the anesthetist aka the medicine woman <laughs> aka the DMT inducer the entity whatever you know <laughs> yeah well yeah and when, when when we when I get Lisa on I'll, I'll talk about my my experience that you know I, you know I and I I uh, I I didn't you know shock horror I didn't uh see any entities and um uh but yeah it was pretty intense and um but you know the 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 uh one of the most important things for me was really how that space was held um and yeah and um yeah I'll probably I'll I'll wait to speak to Lisa about that but but you know it's very very important and you know at at, at no point was I uh worried about uh my body even though I didn't really have one I had the sense of not having one but I wasn't worried and yeah yeah it made a massive difference and just to add, you know, one of the other studies that I've done at Imperial is a ketamine in healthy volunteer study. Um, the results of that will be coming out at some stage. But for that, we were doing, we were giving participants the double the dose that they standardly use in mental health. So we know we had to prep them and prepare them properly for that and yeah just to add it's just another level you know it's i've used ketamine 
as an anaesthetist in so many different settings. So I used it in COVID in the front line of um, in intensive care because you couldn't like patients keep breathing with it. So it's, it was useful in COVID settings. I used it in South Sudan um, in like the developing world because it's a, it's a ch- relative well it is a cheap anesthetic and it's well tolerated and it's sort of easy to use in in low resource settings and then now it's sort of like being used in a, a mental health setting uh, but we're, we were tweaking it so yeah there's a lot to to be said about um yeah medicine competence the actual space it's given in the setting like is it in the a makeshift tent in the middle of South Sudan or are you in a like psychedelic setting where you've got nice music and artwork and there's a lot to do with the environment that you give it in or are you in the middle of intensive care where everyone's yeah <laughs> it's like it's like a battle zone yeah or, or, or it was during COVID um yeah that's again a, different, a whole different yeah and uh, people who've read my blog will know that I, I sometimes refer to you as, as the k-men the k-men as well or the k-women <laughs> um and yeah so uh, we're coming up to the hour and I know that you're off to a, a guitar lesson shortly so yeah. um but I, I thought yeah, I just want to say about that I just, yeah you've mentioned David Bowie I'm learning um <laughs> the man who sold the world by yeah the Nirvana version of you know, the Nirvana unplugged version of that. So, yeah, anyway, carry on. Yeah, so, well, well hopefully when we get together, we can uh, bang one of those out together, bang, bang, bang a bit of Bowie out together. <laughs> but, using the word banging. Yeah, I know, actually, yeah. But maybe, will it be, would it be okay to end on? So, um, you know, you have been... Uh, a uh, a wonderful advocate for, for for my work and for nursing in general and I wondered if it might be uh, okay just to end on maybe saying something about um, uh, the, 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 the the special relationship um, between uh, doctors and nurses and, and and when I think about it myself is um, you know I know for we, we got on uh, from the get-go really and, and that was in, in part because we, we're doctors and nurses and we have that kind of shared history that shared cha- training most people would be be so surprised at just how uh how uh well trained um people are in the, in the kind of in, in the kind of me- medical um professions but um when I had that opportunity to uh guide with you twice at Imperial I, I knew it'd be I knew it'd be good I knew it would be uh good and that, that we would do well I hoped it would be good and we would we would do well and stuff like that but um I was kind of reminded uh of the uh the power uh of uh when a, a kind of a a, a, a a good nurse and a good doctor kind of come to, together and I, I felt that um uh, there was something about uh, our relationship in in the space that felt uh bigger than the sum of our parts um hopefully our participants would agree <laughs> but but that, that's kind of how how it felt for me but you know maybe you could say a little bit about that relationship yeah for me the the doctor nurse relationship is is absolutely key um it's like batman and robin and robin being the doctor, Batman being the nurse, you know, the, 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 the true, the true core of 
the healthcare system and in healing and patient care in general is, 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 is the nursing care because it's hands-on caring and really understanding what the patient needs. And actually, you know, when you start out as a, a baby doctor um, on the wards and it's terrifying, like you really lean on your nursing colleagues because they just they just get it. And um, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really special relationship. I, you know, even in I, I look at in the operating theatre when the surgeon's doing his thing it's the scrub nurse who's passing him all the equipment and she knows the operation or the nurse, he or she knows the operation like better than the surgeon, you know, and if there's an emergency, she's asking for an extra bit of kit to come out. And that happens in lots of different settings within healthcare. So I think it's a really um, solid, really balanced relationship. Um, but I think the balance could be improved. I think in modern day healthcare, I feel like the nursing voice and also just to sort of name that within anesthesia, we have um, nurses, but we also have ODPs, which are operational um, operation departmental practitioners who have similar roles. So just want to name them as well. Um, but they are often a bit more hidden and don't get as much um, don't get as much of a voice in certain situations. So I think it's really important that that balance is addressed. And actually, when you have anybody in a position of so-called power in whatever setting, but I guess we're talking about psychedelics, but someone who's giving their opinion and their voices it's you know it's all very valid and but I think it's important to be able to ask ourselves like how has that person got there like why are they there and is it down to a certain amount of privilege or extra support or whatever it is and how can we help to to rebalance things so other voices get um, a seat at the table as well yeah mm, yeah thank you and uh yeah as people know I'm, I'm uh yeah quite outspoken in in kind of uh trying to raise the po um, profile of nurses and thinking about how we could uh get more nurses into to, to, to the space um and yeah so uh uh watch this space and um yeah, so um, Dr. Kieran, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. As always, I could talk. I, I could talk to you, and I, I do talk to you <laughs> for hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, but I, we should probably leave it there um, for the for the sake of uh, our listeners. Um, but we're definitely going to do uh, 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 another podcast, and in that one, we're going to get more into uh, your. Uh, associations and work with uh, Blessings of the Forest um, Reciprocity um, oh I said it right that time I find it hard to say that word Reciprocity um, and yeah and, and, and more about kind of being in uh, right relationship in general but um, for today I think we've had a, a wonderful introduction uh, to you and your 
work and uh unless you have anything else to, to say um we kind of leave it there yeah i don't think there's much to say but i, I guess we um as a way of contact um if people want to get in touch with me it's funny because you can follow me on twitter and instagram doing absolutely nothing uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> complete silence no posts uh so i don't even know what my handle is i think it's like at Doctor underscore Kieran K I R A N. That's probably the best way to reach out. Um, I do have an email, but I don't know what that is at the moment. So like my Doctor Kieran emails, I'll sort all that out. But yeah, I don't do anything. Um, but I guess um, maybe it's a bit of an incentive at some stage to actually, you know, make my voice heard a little bit. Um, yeah. Because I know, I tend to take a bit of a backseat and just get on with what I'm doing and head down, do the work. Like, don't sort of talk about it too much. But um, maybe I'll talk about it a bit more on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think people would love that, and I think that's one of the problems in the space, isn't it? That the, the people with the the the, the of sometimes the people with the loudest voices or the uh, uh, yeah the 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 biggest. Uh, social media uh platforms uh uh are obviously getting more attention but no i think it'd be um great to hear uh more about uh your thoughts and yeah if that's through this podcast or however um i will be in complete support of that so um right in, in, enjoy your guitar lesson i look forward to hearing your progress <laughs> <laughs> very soon <laughs> yeah we said we might um, i'll do you a jingle i can yeah oh no right cut the podcast you might not be able to hear it through my headphones okay this is gonna be your outro wait okay and then i'll eventually be able to add in some chords but anyway all right amazing oh, Right. <laughs> 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 Lots of love. Bye. Bye.